Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. HHW LOD and Tangent Bound Network present... A Weaververse Podcast special bonus episode. With your hosts, Mr. Universe. Numfar! Do the dance of joy! And the clairvoyant. Well, you're right about this being a bad idea. An exclusive interview with Weaververse actor Mark Metcalf. Mr. Universe here. Just a heads up, while we normally maintain a spoiler-free podcast, we don't get to talk to celebrities every day. This episode may contain slight spoilers for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. Nights. We're here with, as we mentioned, our special guest. Uh, we've been teasing you about Mr. Mark Metcalf, fantastic actor in the Whedonverse. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate having you here. Certainly, certainly. Glad to do it. As well, we're also joined by our co-host, the Clairvoyant. Hello, everybody. Is he really a Clairvoyant? Uh, well, sometimes I wonder. <laughs> I did I take think, a. I think if he's going to go around with the name clairvoyant he should be tested once in a while <laughs> i did take a test what superpower would i have and i did get clairvoyance oh you did okay. well good well see if you can read my mind go ahead yeah you he won't even have to answer i'll just I can answer think it and he'll hand. know and he can answer for me <laughs> so mark how in bobby the vampire slayer how did you come across the character of the master what drew you to audition for him well i'm an actor, so I go to an audition if it's a job and pays American money. <laughs> I'll go, especially in those days when there wasn't that much work that readily. But when I read the script, I thought, well, this is good, and it's a great character. I mean, it had all the echoes of of Nosferatu, and uh, and it's it's great to play perfect evil, sure. the oldest and meanest man in the world. It's really <laughs> fun to, to do all that. So that's, that's what my agent sent me up for it, and I went up. And then I got called back, I think I was called back three times, because the casting director, who told me this later, she said they'd been through so many actors trying to figure out who could play this role, and Josh couldn't make up his mind. He knew he didn't want anything like Rutger Hauer in the movie, because he really didn't like that they'd gone with this kind of lounge lizard uh, (laughs) vampire in the movie. But they couldn't figure it out, so she brought... Sometimes casting directors will do this thing where they sort of bracket it. They bring in people that they think are totally wrong, and then just a little bit wrong, and then bring in people who are right, and they just try to find out what the director is thinking and try to give him those choices. And she said she brought me in because she thought I was totally wrong. <laughs> but apparently she was the one that was totally wrong. Josh liked what I did, and, and uh, we worked on it, and I came back a couple of times, and then they... They said, uh, why don't you do it? 
was that easy. That's fantastic. So you mentioned that they didn't want anyone like Rutger Hauer from the movie. Had you seen the film prior to your audition? I had seen it. I'm not exactly sure why, but <laughs> I had seen I had seen it, and actually and actually kind of and actually kind of liked it. It had a good sense of humor, and uh, it was different than the than well, there weren't a lot of vampire movies at the time. Right. Not nearly as many as there are now. <laughs> um, but it, but it just had a good sense of humor, and I loved uh, Pee Wee Herman in it. What's his name? Uh, Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. I loved Paul Rubens in it. I thought he was great, and uh, uh, and so and I quite quite liked it. I mean, it's it's in all it's on all and honestly, it's a very it's a really good script. I mean, Joss, Joss had written a really good script. I agree that the sense of humor really shines through, and that's easily the best part about the movie. And Paul Rubens was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's great in it. Okay. And and the girls, the, the girl, what's her name? Christie, Christie, something. I don't uh, know. Swanson. Swanson, that's right. And and you know she's good. She's formidable. She doesn't have all the colors that I think uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar brought to it. Right. But she's good, and there's an advantage to doing it as a series to doing it over a course of time. For an actor, you get to bring all kinds of different stuff. You get to work on a lot of different things. If you're only doing an hour and a half movie, you have an hour and a half to present, you know, to develop and and grow a character and show as much of this character's wholeness and humanness as you can. And uh, it's not a lot of time to get that all in. But if you're doing a series, you have more time to sort of bring, bring humanity, which is sort of a big part of the job. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that, I guess, when they watch the movie movies versus series. Yeah, I think they probably don't because they're watching it every week. But especially the, the uh, cable stuff that they do on HBO and things now where there's a, a you know an arc you're doing instead of doing a, a one and a half hour, two hour movie, you may be doing a ten hour movie, right? You know, five two hour segments, and uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of that's Stella Adler, my, who was one of my teachers when I was coming up as an actor, used to say, the playwright writes the short story, the actor writes the novel, and if you've got ten hours to write this novel, to create this character, to bring the detail, it's a really it's a great advantage. Yeah, I agree. And there was quite a bit of makeup and prosthetics in this role. Uh, and according to the legend of the internet, uh, the master's uh, Nosferatu-esque look was at least partially your idea. Is that true at all? Yeah, when I first saw the pictures, that they, the drawings that they had from the master, he had long black hair and was sort of angular, but he, I, I really had admired Murnau's film Nosferatu, and I liked the, uh, the Willem Dafoe, um, what's his name, the guy from Steppenwolf, whose name I'm blanking out, Shadow of a Vampire, the okay. film that they made about the making of the Murnau film. And I thought, as long as we're doing this, and as long as we're creating a vampire, and Josh and I talked, and he said he's the, he's the oldest vampire ever. He's 800 years old, which I think predates the uh, the Bram Stoker one by 200 years. <laughs> as long as we're going to make him older, let's make him a lot older. And I thought, let's bring a little of this history and a little of this tradition to it and uh, and make him look a little bit more like this character. And I talked to Joss about it. And I talked to the makeup people about it. 
and they finally agreed that it would be that it would be good. They could still accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, which was a scary monster kind of look. And uh, and they could also I don't know if they really cared the way I did about about the uh, the history and the tradition, but they they understood it and they and they went along with me. So yeah, so we worked it out. And the makeup took five hours in the beginning of the season to put on, primarily because they had the shape of it. They had the ears, they had the head, they had the face and the neck, but they didn't quite know what to do with the color. So they would put it on me, actually, the prosthetic on me, all one, two, three, four, five pieces, and then they would begin to paint. So it really didn't take very long to put it on at all, but it took a long time to paint, and and they I was there and I was conscious, so and it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut if I'm conscious and there. <laughs> uh, so I had you know I I would say maybe a little of this, maybe a little of that, try this, and it took if you watch the whole season marathon it from beginning to end, you can sort of see the color evolve and what is referred to in the last episode my, as my punch bowl mouth. <laughs> right. It's not there at the beginning. It really, I mean, it's the mouth, the shape is still there, but the color, the fact that it looks like he's been drinking blood for 800 years is not quite there. That's something we kind of arrived at, I don't know, second, third episode. By the time, by the end of the season, the makeup only took three and a half hours to put on because they would, once they'd sort of gotten the coloring the way they wanted, they would paint it off of me and then put it on and finish the painting on me. It took about an hour and a half to take off. Wow. Because they took it off nice and slowly and carefully because it, it quite, uh, it's quite abusive to your skin, especially if you have fair skin, tender skin like I do. Right. They say when Rene Aubergenois was playing whatever his character was in the Star Trek, whichever version of Star Trek it was, you guys probably know better than I do, that he would just come off after his last shot and just rip the thing off. And I don't know how he managed to do that without losing <laughs> a layer upon layer of skin. <laughs> it took off real slowly and carefully. That's fair. And what was it like seeing you in vampire makeup for the very first time? What was it like for me to see it for the first time? On your face. On my face. Well, I, I, I saw it grow. So, I, you know, I'd get there at 3 or 4 in the morning, and they'd start. And I'd also seen, I'd done a death mask and seen the drawing. So I saw it grow over a period of time. Uh, when it finally was finished, and as I said, it was a very a collaborative process. I mean, it was primarily the makeup people. But they allowed me, you know, my two cents here and there. When it was finally finished, it was it was a great way to get into character. So because by, by the time it was done, after five hours of this and and weeks and days of preparation and and uh, imagining and uh, and thinking and planning, uh, by the time it was done, I w- I felt like I was in character. I, I was I was within that guy somehow. It, I was behind the mask of this guy, obviously, but uh, I felt like I was, I, you know, I, it helped me find the character. It helped me become him. Okay. So we've mentioned before on our show here, uh, the master, if you look at it on paper, is a pretty generic idea for a villain. You know, it's a, he's the leader of a religious cult. 
which doesn't sound that interesting, but you really brought the charisma and creepiness t- and energy to the role to make it stand out and be legitimately entertaining to watch. So is this something that you had discussed uh, with Joss and the writers, or is this just kind of how you always envisioned the character? It's pretty much how I always envisioned that character, and in fact, I always envision all characters as the center of the universe. (laughs) Most people imagine themselves to be the center of their universe and, uh, and act accordingly. And so my job is to entertain and elucidate uh, the human condition, something about the human condition. And even though he's a vampire, it's still something related to the human condition, a, a metaphor or something, as you, if you will. It's, what I, it's how I, I envision all characters to come out. I think every time I do a character, any character, I think that the job is to create a character that's both entertaining and impactful on someone's imagination and that they won't be able to get rid of it for the rest of their lives. <laughs> if I've done my job well, right. they'll, it'll be part of them. I'll so penetrate the uh, being of everybody who watches. Now, this is totally vain and glorious and vainglorious <laughs> and, and egocentric, <laughs> but it's, how, but it's, it's, the, it's what the passion of the work is. I mean, you're, you're creating a character but you're create, hopefully you're creating a character that people will remember forever. They're all, even the smallest character, they always say there are no small uh, characters, only small actors. I never wanted to be a small actor. So even if I carried a spear in Shakespeare, as I did early on, or played a small part in the background who brought a message to the chief of police, uh, I... I did it with the intent that uh, this person be be res- remembered and respected somehow. You see what I mean? Right, and I think it definitely uh, paid off. It definitely, that effort paid off. And as far as Josh is concerned, he certainly never stepped in the way. And I, David Greenwald, the other uh, producer and director of a lot of the episodes, they, they never sort of got in my way. They encouraged that because I think they understand that that's what good acting is. It's basically your you're trying to create a character that lives within the framework of the story, but also will continue to live in the minds of everyone who watches. And they encourage that. And many of your other works, uh, Animal House, the Twisted Sister videos, or you know, Hill Street Blues, to name a few, uh, you usually yeah. play a brash or mean characters, usually villains, but never quite as evil as the master. So do any of those other characters... Did they come through in the performance of the master, or vice versa? Has the master come through in any roles after this? I don't think so. I hope not. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's any of Niedermeyer in the master <laughs> any more than there is whatever there is of Niedermeyer that's in me, and whatever there is of the master that's in me. That's that's shared. I mean, if you did one of those math things that they used to do about draw a circle, and this is the master, and now draw another circle that is Niedermeyer, and draw a circle that is uh, the maestro from Seinfeld, and draw a circle that is Romeo from Romeo and Juliet when I did it in Riverside Park with Kate Burton. If you draw all those circles, they would have to all intersect and or overlap, and that part would be me. Do you see what I mean? Right, yeah. 
for sure. Yeah. So, so yes, there's part of Niedermeyer in the master. That part is me, the creative energy. That makes sense. So how does it feel to be part of you know, the, the Buffyverse, a universe that has such a huge following? Uh, do you have any idea when you signed on that the fan base would be as big or as crazy as they got now? No, no, not at all. I, I mean, I, I, thought, I thought it was really good writing, which I thought probably meant that it had a good chance of failing. <laughs> because, because good writing oft, often does fail in television especially network television. It was good writing. It was a good bunch of people, good bunch of actors, good uh, production crew, good directors, good, great producer. So uh, I knew that I was, uh, well, actually, it's a funny story. When I got cast, Josh, I said, so Josh, this character goes throughout the season. What's his arc? Where does he end up and where does he go? And Josh said, well, at the end of the uh, season, you kill Buffy. And I said, oh, great. Does that mean that the second season will be called Master the Buffy Slayer? <laughs> and he laughed like, kind of like that and said, well, we'll have to see. He didn't tell me that uh, I do kill Buffy, but then she gets resurrected by those silly high school people and, uh, <laughs> and, and comes and kills me. Uh, so I, I figured it was only, I, they didn't ask me to sign a contract. They wanted to shoot it show to show because they could get me cheaper that way they didn't ask her for a contract for the whole season they figured they had a good character they i wanted to do it and they'd just go with it and they shot me show to show so i didn't think that there was going to be a second season so i didn't really think about its success other than as i said before the actor's imperative is always to make it as good as it possibly can be and so I I worked that way, and and so I'm completely surprised that now, in '97, how many years ago was it? Twenty something years ago, right? Just about. Yeah. Almost twenty. Yeah, fifteen, seventeen, eighteen years ago. Uh, and people are still talking about it on on the internet and uh, on television. And I, I'm still asked every once in a while to go to a convention or so, which I say yes to if it's in an interesting place. <laughs> and uh, and so that that's a complete surprise. In much the same way that it's a complete surprise that Animal House, thirty-seven years later, is still talked about and seen, and people recognize me on the street for it, and come up and tell me how it changed their life. And I say I'm sorry <laughs> because I hear that it changed their life. Maybe not for the best, but you never know. So, speaking of people recognizing you on the street, I assume more likely that you're recognized for your other roles, but do you get recognized as the master at all? No, God, I hope not. I mean, not after all that makeup. There was one time I owned a restaurant for a while out in Wisconsin, and there was somebody came into the restaurant, and I sat them at their table, and I was walking away. They said, hey, aren't you, aren't you the, didn't you play the master in Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And I looked at him and said, do you recognize me? He said, yeah, yeah, you look exactly like him. <laughs> and I was, I was honestly depressed for, for a week, even though he told me later that it was all a gag and that he knew who I was because he knew I was there, knew me from my other work, and he just wanted to sort of pull a prank on me, as it were. But it depressed the crap out of me. Cause I, I wouldn't want to be recognized that way. People do recognize the voice sometimes. Yes, I would. Be, I could see that. 
because I didn't I didn't do I mean it was hard enough to speak around and through those teeth so I didn't do any sort of funny fancy voice I, I wanted to play him as human as possible given the fact that he was you know living inside this monstrous face and head so no so no nobody usually they don't recognize me probably for the best yeah thank you <laughs> but I have I think I've aged better than he did I hope yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes we know what happens when you get to 800 so <laughs> yeah that's right you just turn to dust <laughs> So it was nearly 20 years ago, but do you have any behind-the-scenes stories or anecdotes that you remember? Do you remember any favorite you know, moment or line or just kind of behind-the-scenes tomfoolery? Tomfoolery, such a great word. Tom, quit fooling around. Um, <laughs> not, not really, because of the length of time it took to put on the makeup, and then the fact that the makeup was sort of difficult to negotiate in certain, in many ways. I spent a lot of time alone in my trailer waiting to go on, and also because they wanted to save money, when they'd come call me in and put me in makeup, because it's expensive to hire those guys to come in and do makeup, and then you know they're going to get overtime on both ends, the front and the back, uh, they would shoot most of the time. So I was busy working and or preparing most of the time. There's one kind of funny thing, is because with the nails on, it was very hard for me to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and if I drank, and when it was hot, I drank as much water as I could just to keep myself hydrated because I would, I would sweat, and they'd have to, if I sweat, it would pool right around the nose, and they would have to go in and poke a hole in the nose and sort of milk my nose and <laughs> squeeze the sweat out and then patch it back up and repaint it. But I had to go to the bathroom one time I remember and I couldn't because I had the nails on and there wasn't time to take them off just to sort of unzip my zipper and, and uh, get my stuff ready to go to the bathroom however you say it politely and uh, so uh, I had to go to wardrobe and a nice young woman in wardrobe volunteered to help me go to the bathroom so she undid my zipper and helped me uh, get it out, and it was able to pee by myself, but then she helped me get it back in. I thought that was very kind of her, and I can't remember her name, and that's probably very rude, but maybe it's actually better. Maybe that is better, yeah. <laughs> so, since you mainly worked with the villains, you know, Julie Benz and Brian Thompson and all those folks, right. did you see the main cast of the show very often, or only you know, rarely when you shot scenes with them? Only really when I shot scenes with them. Julie, I saw. I think I shot a lot with Julie or more scenes with Julie than anybody else, other than the little boy right. who, was, uh, who was great because he was so innocent and naive and didn't quite know where he was or what he was doing. So he was great to sort of play with. But Julie, I got to spend time with. And also since we did that, I shot an episode of uh, Angel about the making of Angel and how... Uh, I made Darla, and then Darla makes Angel, I think. Right. So we we had that scene that we got to shoot together, and we spent some time on that. And then she's come to several of these conventions that I've been that I've gone to, and we've got to spend time there. So it was great to work with her. The the, the kind of big guy, I don't even remember his name, but I didn't spend much time with him off camera. 
because it was all, I tend to work when I'm working and not socialize, and I don't want to distract myself with conversations about, did you see that movie, or did you see that play, or what do you think about the weather? Right. I, I like to stay within as much as I can. Sure. Okay. So you stated uh, in an interview a few years back that uh, you were listing some of your favorite roles, and the master did come up as one of your favorite to play. Uh, because of the fun you had with this character, did you watch any of the show after your your tenure on it? No, I didn't actually. I, I I watched a little of it while I was doing it, but I don't like to watch myself. Right. So I tried not to. Since uh, we since I did it, I watched, and I haven't watched, but I haven't watched much of the other stuff. But I always say that that's because it's not true. Because once the master died, the whole series went downhill. <laughs> That's, again, just my egomaniacal uh, point of view that I feign. It's not true. I just pretend that I'm that egomaniacal. But no, so I didn't watch it all the way through. I watched it again a few times in the seventh season. Is the seventh season the last season? Yes. Yeah, because I was told at the beginning of the season that they, they had me out to shoot a little sort of a green screen effect where all the villains show up, bang, 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 bang. And, I had, and they said that there's an episode at the end of the season that we're going to call you for uh, where it's all about you. And I thought, okay, so I watched a few episodes uh, to see, you know, sort of what they were, whether the style had changed, and all that stuff that you look for with actors, who the new actors were, who I might be working with, so I could get a sense of their rhythm ahead of time. And uh, and then when it did, when they did call and say, we're going to shoot this episode next week, can you be here? I said no, because I was doing a play, and I couldn't leave the play for a week, right. even though they would, pay, would have paid me uh, twice as much as I was making doing the play, and my commitment was to the play, so I couldn't do it. And I'm told Joss has never forgiven me for that. That's what somebody told me anyway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah! I I said no to the real master. <laughs> <laughs> so focusing on you, how did you you get your start in acting? You know, at what point did you realize that this is a a career for you? So I, I went to college as an engineer at the University of Michigan, and my sophomore year, my roommate said, "Come audition for this play. They're doing Henry the Sixth by Shakespeare, all three parts." There's a ton of parts. You're sure to get something. And the girls are really friendly in the theater department. <laughs> and the girls were barely even girls in the engineering department in 1965. So I went and I auditioned and I got cast in, I think, 15 parts in the three parts of Henry VI. And, and I haven't been able to look <laughs> back since. It was such a, a brave new world filled with with miraculous creatures who had the extremes of all emotions, not just on stage, but off stage in the green room and in the bars and everywhere, that it was a, it was a really a revelation to me, a kid who came from a family of engineers, kind of a dry, intellectual, cold environment. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was a great revelation, and I loved it, and I just I stayed. I haven't been able to get out of it since. I tried when I, I quit and went to Wisconsin and bought a bar, but they dragged me back in. <laughs> So there are uh, countless essays on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's actually the most academically studied TV show of all time. And a lot of... It is, yeah. It beat out Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, and it's 
it's it's insane. Uh, and a lot of these essays actually focus on the oppressive patriarchal nature of the master. So what's it like to be you know an academically studied pop culture phenomenon, even though you only appeared in you know, a handful of episodes? Oh, it, it's great. It's great. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, as I said earlier on, the intent is always to create a character within a story that lives that, that is integral to the story and, and it holds the integrity of the story, but a character that people have a hard time forgetting because he's he has so much resonance with uh, with their own humanity and with their way of seeing the world. And and I, I think I've was successful in that in Niedermeyer, at least it, they tell me that when I go, when people say how important it was to them, and the same is true of the master, I think, is that, uh, and, and, to see, and to hear that it's the most academically studied television series and that that character is integral to that study is, is great. I, I feel really, my head is swelling. I feel really <laughs> proud of it. I feel very, really happy. And I'm, and any teachers who are teaching it, I listen to this, I would be happy to come and talk to the class about it if anybody wants me to. That's fantastic. They're paying American money. <laughs> <laughs> so in you know early drafts of scripts and comics and all sorts of different documents that have surfaced in the Internet age, it's been revealed lots of information about the master. Like his name was Heinrich Joseph Nest. He was born in the 1100s. But we don't learn much about him on screen, on the actual program. So did you create any backstory while you were playing the character to sort of fill in the gaps and understand him more? I, I, did, I did up to a point. I don't know that I knew his name was Heinrich. What's his name, Heinrich? Heinrich, uh, Heinrich Joseph Nest. Yes, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know that I knew that or if that's part of the text of any of the episodes or not, but I, but I, I remember Heinrich being something that I thought about. I, I didn't so much. I listened to a lot of old, there's a lot of great recordings of old Gregorian chanting and, and other more, even more primitive chants, some Buddhist chanting that I listened to a lot. That's really ancient, ancient chants that have gone down. I listened to a lot of that, which was most of my preparation. I usually do uh, create as much backstory as I can on the character, but I tend to do it on the fly uh as we're going and and i don't always remember all of it sure. so i did i mean i didn't i don't think i created backstory like who is his wife and what do you have for breakfast this morning <laughs> blood that, it wasn't that kind of play it wasn't that kind of uh that wasn't the style of it but i but i you know i i tried to immerse myself in what i would have what i thought at the time might have been the world of being supremely evil and living forever. Living forever had a lot to do with what I thought. I mean, just what kind of boredom comes on and how you how you fat, try to fascinate yourself if you're a creative individual when every day you get up and you're underground and can't come up above ground. That might explain why he abuses all of his minions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because if, if you can't be killing people and drinking their blood, you may as well kill the stupid people that are surrounding <laughs> and uh and i did one of my one of my favorite lines is you've got something in your eye <laughs> fantastic line yeah and then and then the boy i loved having the boy around because he was like a young me it was like being a father it was like being a very corrupt and perverse father but uh 
it was fun having that, that little boy around to sort of bring him along. Too bad he so, never actually got to wreak as much mayhem as <laughs> I had intended him to do. <laughs> so in my studies of your character, uh, I learned that in a short dream sequence in season two, they used some archival footage of you as the master, but reportedly they filmed some new footage with David Boreanaz filling in for you in your role. Were you aware of this at all? No, I wasn't. I, somebody told me later. I didn't even know until you mentioned it just now that it was David uh, that did it. That uh, I was made aware later after they'd already done it. Because I had moved in 1999. I moved from Los Angeles to California. I gave up really hustling my way in the business. And if they wanted me, they knew where I was. They could call me and I'd go back and do it. And uh, But they didn't want to call me and ask me to come back and do then pay me to fly me back and put me up and pay me to do it. And they could get David because he was already on the set as Angel, I guess, so they could put him in the makeup and get him to do it. So I was I found out about that later and uh, and thought, well, if I'd been in L.A., it would have been a day's pay and might have been fun. But uh, you make your choices and you have to live with them. Right. I'd chosen to go live in Wisconsin. So if you had to return... This, if you had the chance, rather, to return to this role in any capacity at all, would you would you do it? In any capacity at all? What do you mean? In your know, film or voice acting or... Oh, voice acting or... Yeah, sure, in a minute. I'd love to do it. Yeah, it was a, it's a great character. I'd go back and do it. I mean, it, I'm old enough now that... I mean, I made... I think I made some mistakes in terms of a career uh, after I did Niedermeyer they tend to have sort of a very limited imagination in Hollywood, so I tended to get cast in parts like that. But then I went ahead and did them like I did the Twisted Sister videos. I probably should have said no and uh, and held out for something that was different. But if you do the same thing again and again, you tend to get typecast as that. And so I wouldn't want to get typecast as the master unless there was a whole lot of work of old, old vampires or old mean guys. I don't mind playing old mean guys. <laughs> um, but uh, but now at my age, uh, if anybody asked me to do anything, I'd go do it. Sure, if they wanted to do the master again, I'd do it. I think I could still fit into the coat and the pants too. <laughs> Fantastic. I know there was, uh, in one of the later video games, the Master returned as a character, and they had some other guy playing you, and it it was impressive how how very little it sounded like you. He, he did an English accent, and it was... <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen that, so I don't know, but uh, yeah, well, he probably wanted to make it as much his own as he could, rather than try to do me. I don't know why he's doing an English accent. Yeah, but his name is Heinrich... Whatever you said, he should be doing a little bit of a German accent. Right. <laughs> All those English guys do great American accents. A lot of American actors like to think they can do good English accents. <laughs> Not always the case. <laughs> Not always the case, yes. So what has been the greatest lesson that you've learned in your years of acting? The greatest lesson that I've learned in my years of acting? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I think uh, something that you're taught when you do improv one of the first rules of improv is to, is to always say yes. Right. Never say, never say no. Always say yes to your partner, your scene partner. And uh, it, that that's, that's to, says to me something about generosity. And uh, after 40 years of getting making my living as an actor, um, I think, I hope anyway, that I've learned 
that generosity of spirit and generosity of, of your own self, just the, the, the willingness to freely give yourself up in a way is one of the most important things that you can do. And especially if you're in a room filled with a bunch of other actors who are all giving themselves up freely in a way, uh, you can really create some wonderful stories and some wonderful um, images and, and songs and thoughts and feelings. So I guess, I guess that the, the best advice I ever got as an actor was from Mike Nichols, who just died recently. Uh, well, I assume he was directing me in a play in New York uh, called Streamers, a David Ray play, and he once said to me, you're an actor, act like you're a good one. <laughs> and I walked away quite hurt at first until I realized that's actually really good advice. As long as I'm an actor and I know how to act, I may as well act as though I'm a good actor. Yeah. Behave that way and become a good actor. I mean, we're all acting anyway all the time, so I may as well act like I'm a good one. So, Mark, what have you been up to lately? You know, organizations you're involved with or you know, things you've been shooting recently. What, what's been the life of Mark Metcalf recently? Uh, well, let's see. I just finished, about a month ago, I finished playing Scrooge in A Christmas Carol at uh, the University of Montana here in Missoula, where I live. And I'm on the board of directors of the Montana Natural History Center trying to give back to young kids. It's a great organization for teaching children ages, uh, grades three to five, uh, trying to teach them a good relationship with the natural world, with creatures and and uh, plants and animals and water and the stuff we, we need to live with. Um, so I feel like I'm giving back through that. I do, uh, I just was in New York to shoot a promo with Jimmy Fallon for The Tonight Show based on one of the Twisted Sister videos the second one the one i want to rock uh but at the last minute it was canceled so i, I went to new york in doing that and it was canceled i was literally in my costume and in makeup waiting for the car to show up and uh, i had to watch i'd watch the show jennifer jennifer lopez was on the show and anthony mackie was on the show i'd watch the show gone back stage afterwards got in the costume got in hair and makeup ready to go, had my clothes under my arm. We were heading in a car out to Queens to shoot this thing, and they came up and said, I'm sorry, Mark, we don't know why, but the entire shoot has been canceled. So, wow. Oh, and, darn. Yeah, coitus interruptus, as they say. <laughs> oh, and I also am a champion for the Alzheimer's Association, which just means that they trot me out if there's something they need to sort of draw attention to, but I'm, I tried to do as much work for Alzheimer's as possible. So give to Alzheimer's. Definitely do. Thank you very much for joining us, Mark. I think that's all the questions we have for you today. And Oh, I appreciate having you here so much. It's, it's uh, a dream. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for doing this and for keeping, uh, keeping it all alive and keeping it going. Thank you. Of course. Well, definitely check out uh, Mark's organizations and uh, his, his more recent works. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks for listening to this special Weedinverse podcast bonus episode. If you'd like to hear more special episodes like this, support the show by listening to our other episodes and spreading the word. 
You can also leave us feedback or suggestions on Facebook, Twitter, or through email at WhedonversePodcast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at at WhedonCast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash WhedonversePodcast or review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. The Whedonverse Podcast is brought to you by the HHW LOD Network. You can find them at HHWLOD.com, on Twitter at HHWLOD underscore network, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash HHWLOD. The Tangent Bound Network can be found at TangentBoundNetwork.com, on Twitter at TangentBoundPC, and on Facebook at TangentBoundNetwork. By the way, I like your dress. All programs, productions, characters, music, and stories discussed in this non-profit podcast belong to Joss Whedon and or their respective networks. All music, clips, and discussion used is either original, royalty-free, or released under Creative Commons designation CCBYNCSA. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Thanks for listening.